we just need more messaging around like hope and action and things like that because it's something that's happening. Welcome to Shell Phone, the podcast that gives the ocean its very own hotline. Join us as we hear from ocean stewards, discover threats to ocean health, and learn ways we can all answer the ocean's call. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and Coastal Creative. I'm Harmony Dawson, and joining us this episode is Jill Pelto. She incorporates data from scientific research into art to communicate its importance specifically related to the environment and climate change. Her art features everything from caribou to clownfish. So you studied studio art and earth science at the University of Maine. What was your journey with studying and eventually combining these two different fields? So when I first went to the University of Maine, I I was just enrolled as an art major, but I knew I wanted to like study science in some form. I just needed to like figure out what that would look like. And so I know like my freshman year, I was kind of sampling just different natural science programs like, you know, ocean stuff, wildlife. Um, and then I ended up choosing earth and climate science and I think was always kind of drawn to learning about climate change topics. So I guess it was really my sophomore year that I was like, yep, I'm combining them. You know, I'm going to find a way to make this work somehow. I'll figure it out as I go. And it started to like click and make more sense, of course, like as time went on and especially like into my senior year and realizing how I could combine those two majors. And from my end, it felt very like it worked really well. I think from other like the perspective of my schedule it was kind of sometimes tough to figure out, but I could see a lot of overlap throughout the whole time. Did you have any like independent projects or independent studies that you could combine those two while you were still in school? Or was that something that kind of went on behind the scenes? I started to be able to do a little bit of that, I think my junior and senior year, because as you get further along in programs, there's often like a little bit more flexibility. And for my art classes, for example, like you take like the first few like painting classes and you just kind of are following assignments. But later on, once you get like more advanced, you're really able to come up with a lot more of the type of like content you're going to be showing in your work. And so... I started trying to find ways in my art classes to uh, communicate environmental topics. And then the other thing I was able to do as part of like this program at the University of Maine that was called the Honors College. And it basically allowed you to create like your own kind of final senior capstone project. And so rather than having to just do a project within your department, you could technically do, you know, whatever you wanted. And so I was able to do kind of a combination, like final thesis that was both art and science, which was really great fit for me. And because of that project and kind of forcing me to think about ways to creatively combine my two majors during that process is part of when I came up with incorporating data into my art. So I created my first series of data paintings for like my senior art show that I had. What was your topic? And like, did you do like one piece or was it a collection of pieces for that project? Yeah, I did a collection of of um, data paintings, like say it was somewhere in like the seven to 10 range of paintings, something like that, because I was able to like also kind of combine things and try to be smart about it. So like I was taking painting and like printmaking classes. And in both of those courses, I was trying to create environmental art and like especially this data art. So it was like it was fulfilling class assignments too. And then at the same time, I had to write a senior thesis that was researching kind of scientific art over time, past and then into modern, like what's being done. 
And so I was kind of doing that like research phase of it. I created that bigger like portfolio of work. And at UMaine, you all the seniors in the art program have a exhibition at the gallery on campus. And so I had all my work up in a big group show with other members of my class. So you mentioned that your art directly incorporates graphs and data. And there's also a lot of thought put into what the specific landscapes and the species that you show in your art can communicate to. And then you write descriptions that provide more information and details about what you're showing in the art. So I wanted to ask, what's the goal and the importance of creating data art? I think that's a great question. And it's definitely evolved over time. Like when I first started creating data art when I was in college, it was to try to share some of the things I was like learning about in science and getting to go see firsthand with getting to travel for like science field work. Like when I created my first data art piece, I had just come back that summer from working in Washington state where I now live and working on the mountain glaciers here, all the snow and ice that covers the big mountains and there's hundreds of them here. And because I've had been working on them for many years, I'd seen how much they were changing. And in 2015, it was just a really bad year for the state. Like there was a lot of drought, heat waves, like forest fires, water levels really low, like just all those things that are really tough to see. And I think one thing that people can forget is that for scientists, there's like a lot of emotion behind the work that we're doing and what we experience is just not always going to be shown in like, you know, a scientific publication or something. And so I wanted to showcase that emotion in my artwork that I felt from doing that research. And I also wanted to be like, look, this is like how much change is happening. This is what this like data line is showing for the glaciers. And so I put that in and that spurred the series. And so at the beginning, it was a way for me to communicate that with people who wouldn't come across that data. Like, why would they, you know, and and it could be tough to understand anyway without context. And so it was a way for me to like provide that story in a more accessible way, I hoped. And I didn't know how it would come across. And I think over time, that's continued to evolve where I realized the power that art has specifically in terms of reaching broader audiences, in terms of its accessibility and how people approach it in terms of like, yeah, that emotion that it's able to have in it that people can really connect with. And so I think it's a really good way and always has been, art has always served that role of, I guess, having like the most important things going on in the world, whatever they may be. It's always kind of been an outlet for that. And people have always kind of recognized that. So I think now I really try to tell a lot of different stories about, you know, different types of climate change, but also like climate action and hope and things like that. Just kind of using that different ability it has to to connect with, whether it's like a wider audience or just like a different audience than the science does. I saw that you had a recent piece that you posted called 40 Years in the Northern Cascades. That was a recreation of a similar painting that you did in 2015. And the painting shows changes in the glaciers, but it also shows a big change in your art style. It's very like complex and it brings together the different mountainous landscapes of the Northern Cascades in Washington. Compared to the original painting in 2015, it has the same idea, but the original painting is like more geometric and the new one is more of like a landscape and the data seems more like hidden within it. But I was wondering how you have seen your own style develop over time and what things have influenced that. It was fun to create my new painting, The 40 Years in the North Cascades, because like you said, I created that one like in 2015. And so it was, 
eight or so years ago since I made that last one. And that was that first data art painting that I mentioned, the first one I ever made. So it's like powerful in that way. It's powerful because unlike most of my work, this is research that I actually do. Like most of it is other people's research. And also because I do that research every year and I've seen these changes firsthand. And so I've had this idea of kind of recreating some of my pieces because it's data. It's not like it doesn't tell a good story anymore, but it gets just a little bit outdated over time where it's like, oh, like this painting is, yeah, through 2015 and soon it's going to be like a decade from then and the data has changed and continues to be different. And so it was fun to have that as like a first try. And then in planning out the painting, I realized, oh, how am I going to express this topic now? Like it's not going to be, you know, super different. I'm still going to have the graph line as like the top of a glacier. But in terms of my technique and how that's evolved, it was kind of interesting to see because it wasn't necessarily like I wasn't thinking, oh, this has to be like super different. I was more like just creating in the style that I've developed you know, and grown into over time. And I do still like sometimes like having some of my paintings be more like, you know, more simple. And there's just something different about sometimes work that is kind of more like simple in its look and like more geometric like that first piece. But I did really want to create a piece that was more, um, more detailed this time, a little more kind of realistic. I wanted the glacier to read a little bit more clearly to people as like, as a glacier, like especially where it's a glacier for some people is something like kind of like a foreign idea, like they don't quite understand what what it is. And so I wanted to depict it like more realistically and really highlight the beauty of that landscape and all the cool formations in in the ice itself that you see when you're in these places. So yeah, it was it was really personal and it was really fun for me, even though it's like an emotional piece because I just love that landscape so much and I'm so familiar with it now. And it was great to like kind of go back to that first piece and I want to do that for some of my additional like earlier data art paintings as well. You said that you've worked with those glaciers for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that painting is trying to communicate and what data you incorporated into it? Oh yeah, definitely. So both paintings are data from the North Cascades Glacier Climate Project. And so that research project was started by my dad, Dr. Mori Pelto, when he was a PhD student, he started the project and started started collecting this data in 1984. And so this year is actually the 40th year of the project, which is why I titled the piece 40 Years in the North Cascades, because every single August since he started that in the 80s, he's gone out to the same group of glaciers to do that field work to see like on the ground, like what's exactly happening. Like we have this unique opportunity to measure this dramatic change that's happening now. And so he didn't realize when he started how dramatic it would be, but he has been able to just basically measure, you know, how far the glaciers are retreating back up these mountains, like how much how much ice is actually there. So like as it's melting and it's getting like also lower, there's less of volume of ice and snow on these mountains. And that really impacts the whole ecosystem that relies on this kind of climate. The animals are used to the snow cover and the the glaciers really importantly supply a lot of the water for like this entire kind of region of the country. And so this area is really dry and warm in the summer. And so that's when the glaciers are melting and they really like supplement that and like make it the water levels cold and high enough for like the salmon and things like that. And so they're just really, really important. But of course, are, you know, getting smaller and smaller. 
And so they have such a big impact on all the people who live in this region. And so that piece um, uses data that's specifically about the mass balance of the North Cascade glaciers. And the mass balance is just basically it's kind of what it sounds like, like the mass of snow and ice on the mountain and how like imbalanced that is. And so it's basically the amount of like snow kind of gain in the winter when there's like new snow falling on the mountains and it's piling up and it's piling up that snow eventually becomes ice and is like permanent on the mountain. And so there's that gain. But then every summer when there's melt happening from the heat, then that is like kind of the loss each year. So there's always going to be like snow gain and there's always going to be like that melt and that loss. And so every year now there's just more, you know, loss and there is gain, which means they're like out of equilibrium. They're going to be retreating. They're going to be losing a lot of that mass. And so they have a negative mass balance basically. And so that's what that graph means is like how much each year that that amount of a loss is going up over time. So it gets to be like a bigger negative number, if that makes sense. And so I I started getting to help with that research when I was um, 16, which was really awesome. It's definitely a unique opportunity. I grew up in the, the Northeast, so I'd never seen that type of landscape or glaciers before. So I, that was definitely like a big inspiration for me in what I studied in school because I was able to start to learn about climate change, which was in no way taught in school, nor any type of earth science at all was taught in school. And so I was able to start to get some of that. And I realized how much I cared about that, how much I wanted to further that and learn about that in some capacity. And so I kind of did my own version of it, but followed partially in that inspiration of what my dad does for work as a glaciologist. So this year, like I said, is the 40th year of the project, but it is going to be my 15th year as a field assistant and I'm 30 now. And so since I started that when I was 16 and like counting that year that I was 16 is my 15th year. So it's like half of my life that I've been doing this, which is really crazy. So it's um it's really cool and I feel really lucky for it. It's really hard to work, but I'm really lucky that I got that opportunity that I grew up with it and I get to be part of something that's really inspiring for me. I can definitely see where the emotional connection comes from, from working with them for so long and also working with your dad in research that he's been doing. So you mentioned that you've been hands-on involved with the research with the glaciers. So in those cases and the cases where you're just taking data that somebody else has collected and you aren't necessarily directly involved with, what does your process look like for taking that from the research into making it into the final art piece? When I am creating my data art, the first part of it, of designing the work, is always the hardest part for me, like kind of researching the topic, finding the data, and then like deciding how to show it. That part always takes me a while. And like sometimes I, it's more straightforward and will define what I'm looking for. And, you know, I think of my idea within a month, but sometimes it's like a few months where I'm kind of like trying to learn about something and figure out how to show it because I'm not familiar with the topic really yet. And so it kind of takes a lot of digging and learning. And so early on, I would just kind of, you know, figure it out on my own, kind of do some research, make sure they were good sources and kind of make the piece. And it was more straightforward. But now I feel like I have increased the complexity often of the types of stories that I'm trying to tell. And I'm also a lot more cognizant of like making sure I'm telling those stories the right way. Like if it's not my research, I think in science, it is easy to kind of misinterpret something. And so I really want to make sure that like I'm honoring the work and like sharing it in the right way. And so 
I often will reach out to whoever was involved in like the research now, often just like one person, but sometimes it could be a group. I will like kind of be in communication with them. And if they're up for it, you know, ask them some questions or get their permission and kind of like whatever their capacity is. And so when it's just my own kind of project, I will, that's kind of where I'll stand with it. And then I'll, you know, have enough of a background that I'm able to figure out like what to show visually to tell the story of the data well and like clearly enough for people. Because I feel like you could take any one topic and really share in different ways. You know, if I'm going to be sharing about sea level rise for something broad like that, I don't reach out to anyone because it's not like one person's data, you know, sea level rise. It's like just on, you know, national websites and it's just out there. You know, I don't contact anyone. But there's so many different ways that I could share that story, like sea level rise about like, you know, ecosystems, about like people's homes and businesses or like how it's affecting different places of the world, you know, differently or how it's causing a lot of flooding. Like there's just so many different ways to tell that story. And I can also try to show like, um, you know, what are people doing to prepare for it, knowing it's coming? What are like communities doing and like what types of actions and things are people doing that are good around it? So anyway, there's like all these different stories. So I always have to, that can be the hard part is like, okay, well, what story am I going to tell? Like, what am I going to focus on? Is it going to be really broad? Am I going to focus on like one community and what, how they're being affected. So that part can be fun, but can take a while. And then the last thing I want to note is like, I also now have been really pursuing doing direct collaborations with science teams. And so currently I'm on one grant, but I'm I'm waiting to hear back from two others. And so the grant I'm on is with the National Science Foundation who funds a huge proportion of the research that's done for universities in the US. And so on this National Science Foundation grant, my role is as an artist, which is really cool. And so I'm in like a portion of the grant that's called Broader Impacts. And basically that just means that scientists have to like, there has to be some way in which their research is going to benefit like other people and some way in which they're going to communicate it. And so that's where I'm coming in is I'm making a series of art for this group at the University of Houston. And so I'll be creating three paintings for them that communicate like you know, how do they do their work? What kind of information are they finding? And then why is that research important? And so my art is going to be telling those stories. And then I'm also going to be doing some education kind of outreach around it with some schools local to them. So it's going to be all these different ways that like we show the art, we communicate it with students. So anyway, that like that type of direct collaboration has been really awesome because then I'm able to just learn directly from folks whose research it is where it's not mine and be like, oh, like, what does this mean? Like, what kind of like, you know, data do you have? What should I show? And like, just pick their brain about it. And for this group in Texas, I was able to go do field work with them last month, which was really cool because then I was able to see firsthand what they do and, and what it looks like. Cool. Yeah, it can make the research a lot more humanized almost to like be able to talk to the people doing it and see in their own words and not necessarily like the scientific reports words what they're taking from it and what they hope to find out and communicate have you noticed a shift towards more people doing this kind of outreach with their research art and similar types of communication i have yeah you know obviously i keep learning more and more about all different types of science communication like art and beyond that are being done now. Like I know it's such a growing area, which is so awesome. And there's so many different like types of 
of science communication. And then specifically for the arts, I also like I'm always learning about new artists of all different types who are trying to do something similar or, yeah, just trying to make environmental art in some way. So that's really awesome. It's just such a, a growing field for good reason. And I think, yeah, like you said, a lot of scientists are also, um, I guess, like realizing the value of that now and that it is something worthwhile, it has a direct effect and it can be a really good way to share their work. A lot of scientists also, I think, want to share their work, but they don't necessarily always have the like time to do so, or some of them might not really have the skill set. I've met some scientists who are great artists, but they may not even have the time to do that. Or even if they do like know how to like communicate about their, you know, research. And so for someone to come in, like for me with art, it could be a writer, it could be a musician, anyone like, and be like, hey, this is how I do it. I can share your work. It kind of is, is like, a, it's just a great collaboration because that's not always their role as a scientist. Their role is to like do the research and put it out there for the science community. But do they have the capacity to like share it broadly or do they even know where or how to do so? And so I think that's why the collaborations are really great because they have a lot of good stuff to share and they feel really deeply about it. Sometimes it, it helps to have someone someone whose strength that is specifically. You mentioned other artists. Are there any particular artists who are big inspirations for you in your work or even just outside of science-related art? Yeah, there there's a bunch of artists who are really inspiring for me. And I know there's like a bunch I won't think of right now, but one artist who is really, really prominent is Zariah Foreman. And she does these massive pastels that are like super like hyper-realistic. And I don't know exactly how big they are. Say they're like 15 feet, but they're huge. And um, they're like depicting places in like Greenland and Antarctica and like depicting like ice and icebergs and water and things like that. And just really highlighting the beauty of those places, but especially as as areas that or landscapes that a lot of people in the world will never see. And so if she's trying to like bring that beauty to them, if you're not going to get to, you know, go see these places, this is how it looks like this is what it feels like to be there and to experience that landscape as a way to show people how much these places matter because they might seem far away, but they're really important. And so she's someone that's really inspiring to me and she's really prolific in the art world. A few other artists, one is Diane Burko, and she also, like me, has found some really cool ways of depicting scientific research. And she also actually incorporates different types of data and maps sometimes into her work. And she's really inspiring because her approach is pretty different than mine. So it's really fun to see someone else because when I first started creating data art, I didn't know of anyone else who did that. And I figured there probably was, but I hadn't found anyone. And so now I've found a few other artists who do it in like pretty different ways. Yeah, her work is awesome. And then I've gotten to collaborate or meet with a few other artists in person here in Washington. One is Claire Giordano, who goes out and does like backpacking trips where she brings a bunch of supplies and like captures these landscapes and how they're changing. And so she does, yeah, does these really, really stunning watercolor landscapes and teaches kind of people in this in her courses like how to paint these types of places and showing them how much they matter and then lastly not lastly but one other person is um, rose mcadoo who i also have collaborated with in person and she has a really unique take by creating basically cake art which is hard to visualize you kind of have to see it 
um, on on her website and Instagram, but she like basically sculpts it. And so she could sculpt like a ship, you know, or she basically makes cakes that are communicating scientific research. It's super, super cool. And I think that just comes from her background as like a kind of a high end like cake maker artist you know, um, in New York. And so she does a really good job of, of sharing stories that way. And I think a lot of her idea is just that like food brings people together. So it's like kind of making these like edible sculptures that, um, you know, are creating this community space for people to kind of discuss and think about these topics, which is, I think, a big part of the role that art has in things around the climate is like you can create pieces that showcase what's happening. But I think one really important element is like show your work, not just online, but like in person, because when I do so, it creates these like, yeah, community spaces where people are talking about and thinking about these topics and carving out time. Because I think in people's day-to-day lives, you don't necessarily have time to always dwell on climate change if you're not like, you know, do work related to it. And so if you kind of have these community spaces where it feels comfortable and approachable and that you can just engage with around these topics and think about it in your own life, in your own community, I think that's really powerful in a more positive way than like just seeing, you know, national news and feeling overwhelmed. It allows you to feel more like, oh, there's something I can do. All these people in my community care. The community is a really great point of that's kind of what the goal is to bring everyone together and get them thinking and talking about these topics, but also know other people who are maybe connecting with the same thing that they're connecting with, whether that's in like an art gallery or sitting around a cake sculpture, which I never would have thought of, but that sounds really interesting. And it shows that like you can do this kind of work with really any medium that you like and are interested and good at working with. Yeah. And also you mentioned one artist, Claire Giordano, who you've worked with. And the next thing I was actually going to ask you about was the collaboration that you did with her for your Time Magazine piece. You created a piece with her that showed what Easton Glacier would look like at two different times, a hundred years apart. And your piece has also the data incorporated into it. And they work very well together. But I wanted to ask you what your experience was like working with her to create this collaboration and also working with Time Magazine. So working with Claire, we we first started out as kind of like, you know, connections within like a network of like, you know, science, science artists, like young woman science artists, where that's like, you know, such a like niche thing. And so we just had connected like online on Instagram like a long time ago. But we have ended up like meeting up in person a bunch the last like three years we have. And she's been actually joining because she lives out of side of Seattle. She's been joining for a portion of that research I do here in Washington in the mountains, which is really cool. So she like backpacks in and and creates art. And so we've kind of been collaborating in that way and working together in that way for a long time and have just become good friends as a result of it. And so I had worked with Time in 2020 and created a yeah custom piece for their cover, which I can speak about. So I'm in that network. And when Time was doing this series called like Slices of Time in 2021, they reached out to me to see if I would be interested. And basically, yeah, you chose a year and you could do like any kind of artwork that represented that year. And then some you had to pair with another artist who would represent a hundred years like from that, the year that I chose. And so 
I reached out to Claire because I thought she'd be a really good collaborator and we've been wanting to do something like more, you know, directly art-wise together. And so I thought it would be really cool to choose something around the work in the North Cascades because she has joined on that. And yeah, I depicted Easton Glacier, which is this really big glacier on Mount Baker, which is one of the big volcanoes in in Washington state. It's well over 10,000 feet high. And Easton is this big, like makes up one big side of the mountain, all this ice and snow. And in 2011, it was such a crazy, like snowy year out here and way more than I've ever seen or, you know, I'm sure we'll ever see again. And it was just really cool. It was really different. And it kind of gave me a glimpse into like what it would have been like in the past, which is kind of sad, but true. Like it just, there were years like that in the past and I never, this is the only time I'll ever probably get to see that and how much snow it it had and how much more beautiful the environment is when it's like that. And so anyway, it was just super snowy and beautiful basically that year. And so then Claire showed, because I showed 2011, Claire showed 2,111, 100 years later and kind of did her, her interpretation of how the mountain might look on that side when the glaciers have like retreated way back. And she did this like kind of beautiful sunset to make it look kind of, it looked more dramatic and just kind of highlighted the change. Anyway, so that was like kind of our before and after kind of collaboration. And it was really awesome to do. She did a great job of doing that because she kind of, I was able to, you know, make a landscape based on photos I had and she had to kind of make up a landscape based on how it might be in the future. Your painting for that is very like light white, light blue. You can tell there's a lot of snow and ice there. And then her painting has a lot of pinks and oranges. And it looks like there's just like a small section where there's still part of the glacier remaining, but not nearly as much as there is in that original painting. So I think it's a really effective way to show side by side visually what the difference how big the difference would be. Your art covers so many different topics. They're all related to environmental change, but there are lots of different landscapes and species that show up in different pieces. So I wanted to ask if there was any particular piece that you'd like to talk a little bit more about, either about the process of making it or what the research topic that you were focused on was. Yeah, so um, I'd love to talk about my paintings, replanting resilience. And so that was like the I say paintings because I made these two and they go like side by side. And so like when you have like a pair of paintings supposed to go next to each other, it's called a diptych and it can go up, you know, triptych and so on when there's three. And so anyway, this is this is a diptych. And I I did that one because I kind of like the effect of like the two paintings framed on their own, but like having the image be continuous between the two, but also because they were quite large for what I'm used to painting. And so it was like more manageable to work with like two different pieces of the watercolor paper. They're both just under two by three feet in dimension. And what I am showing in replanting resilience is basically like this like grassy coastal marsh. So like a salt, uh, yeah, salt marsh. And I created those pieces for my first show where I'm in a museum. And so the pieces is actually about about to come down. It's been up for about a year and a half. And they are at the Peabody Essex Museum, which is in, in Salem, Massachusetts, just a little bit north of Boston. And so it's a really nice little museum. And it was really special because um, I grew up in like central Massachusetts. And so I would sometimes go east to that museum. 
um, like with my mom growing up and see the shows. And so it's really cool that that's my first museum show. And the whole exhibition is in their like nature and environmental center. And so the exhibition is on like is is called like climate action. And so that was really cool because that was like the focus of the whole show. Like there were, you know, 25 to 30 artists in the show and all of the pieces of all different media were all about like the action side of things and like hope and what's being done. And like there was like some cool educational components too that were like in addition to the art. So anyway, those two pieces, I made that topic about the salt marshes because a lot of the just like north of that area is like the Great Marsh in Massachusetts. It's like this, re- yeah, just a really big marsh. And there's a lot of those ecosystems like up in Maine where I'd been living for a decade. And so I think those landscapes are really beautiful, but also learning more about them. They're like super important for like water filtration, like clean water. And they host a lot of like super unique species. They also help with like stopping like flooding, like kind of like break up waves and stuff and help with like sea level rise. And I thought it was interesting to learn about places that were trying to like replant more of these coastal like grasses um, to kind of restore these places and like where they've been, you know, destroyed for like building and things like that. So I really wanted to do a piece about the effect of sea level rise in these salt marshes, but also try to find a way to highlight some of the like positive actions like happening around these spaces and coming up with this idea, like again, that was like creating for the museum show. It was really hard for me to find, I really wanted to find data that could represent that, like that piece about like hope and action around the environment, because a lot of those things are happening, but I found it was really difficult to necessarily find data to like tell that story, partly because like these things are newer. And so if there, you know, is data, it's only, it's going to look insignificant, even though it's not, because maybe it's five years, you know, only of something happening, or there's not just not data to, to represent the fact that people are planting this grass, you know, like there's just not. And so trying to find ways to show that visually without the data. But the reason I wanted the data in there is to like, again, kind of have that tangible information to kind of match with the sea level rise data that I was going to show that felt more overwhelming and kind of like balance it out. And so I did, besides the sea level rise data and the painting, I also incorporated two other graphs that were kind of the best things I could find to show something hopeful. And so one of the graphs was about basically like the increase in percent of adults in the United States who when they vote like are voting to basically like support environmental protection broadly and that was like from the Pew Research Center and so it was, yeah it's a source I knew I could trust and that number had gone up over um, I believe about like 10 years from like something in like the 40% range to something in like the like 60% range so it's getting a lot better like it was in the majority and then the third and final graph that I incorporated was about the amount of land being set aside in the Northeast for national wildlife refuges. And so just like, yeah, a lot more, a lot more wild land being kind of carved out and set aside for, you know, all the species that live there and um, imposes a bunch of restrictions. So it's like people can still use that land. You can like often hunt on it still, but you can like, you know, build on it, kind of motorize things on it usually. So basically, yeah, just setting aside a lot more of that land. And so I tried to like show in my painting, like people like, you know, planting grass, restoring that ecosystem, monitoring it. I try to show people like observing the data and show people just like enjoying that landscape. And so I don't often put people in my paintings and I, not for like a strong reason, I just think it's kind of harder and it's harder to like not make it look like I want my work to be fine art. Not that there's anything wrong with something that's like more of a cartoon or more um, 
you know, like a textbook illustration of something happening, but I still, I do want, I want my work to, to be more fine art. And so trying to show something that didn't look cheesy with like the people like taking action, you know, was kind of tricky for me to figure out how to do. Anyway, so this is like a long-winded answer, but basically I'm just really proud of how, how that piece kind of communicated that complexity of like the importance of that landscape, how it's going to be affected but like on the other hand, what people are doing. And I also like put in all these different like specific types of plants, fish and birds that I'd research that live in these places and rely on them. So yeah, I just think like they came out really beautifully and I'm really proud of the message I was able to put in because it was it was hard to figure out like how to tell that story and it, and it ended up being complex. So I think you know, not everyone who looks at the pieces is going to get the whole story, but everyone's going to come away with probably like different parts that they notice. Or if they do, you know, not everyone's going to go up to art and no one, you know, not everyone reads the like, you know, descriptions next to art pieces. Um, but if they do, they'll learn about like, this is what all the data is. This is what all these different elements in the painting are. So there's that option for people who do want to, you know, fully engage with it. I think including the people in this piece works really well to show them like actually doing the act of replanting and doing the work there I think works really well with this and you mentioned picking specific plants and animal like fish species and I see there's like ducks birds and things in this painting do you do that for all of your paintings for like the very specific things like the types of grasses or the types of trees that you might see like how in detail you usually have to get to convey that yeah, I usually do to like some extent, like for some paintings, say I was just seeing a painting of like the coast of Maine, I might not worry about like, oh, what types of trees I might just paint like, you know, a mix of evergreens and, you know, maple, like deciduous trees and stuff. Like I might not worry about like, oh, what exact species, but if it's like part of the message that I'm trying to tell or like part of the story I'm trying to tell, then I'll really dig in like the type of fish. I didn't want to just paint random types of fish. I wanted it to be, to be ones that really live like in in those coastal areas and yeah, off in the Northeast US. And so it just felt like if I'm going to show them then I need to know like what types are some of the main types that would live there and be there as a way to depict them. And some of that is wanting to showcase that and not, not a lot of people are going to know, but also like figuring out like what to paint and like what to include because I can't just paint a good realistic fish or bird like that from my head. Like I have to find, you know, images to like reference from. And so what am I even going to look up? Like what type of fish? So then I have to learn, you know, what's there. And uh, for that, it was fun. I was able to talk to like a friend from grad school that could point me in the direction of some, yeah, good species. And I could kind of bounce things off of him and be like, would this be good to include? Where should I kind of start? Because there's so many different species. And I sent him like my final list. Like, is this a good kind of general representation of what's here? I always share this when I work with like different students, but when I'm making the pieces, if I can, I'll go take photos like myself of stuff, but often I can't. And so like, I'll find a bunch of photos online and I'm always like, you know, I'll always say like, oh, you're, you can't, co you shouldn't copy like a photo. And so that's why it's like, if I'm doing any one thing, I'll, I'll find a ton of photos and I create like basically like, you know, a PowerPoint or something like that, that like each slide has a bunch of photos on it. Like there could be 20 pictures of one bird on a slide. So it's like, oh, I'm kind of taking a little bit from this picture and this picture. But it's like my photo reference throughout the project. Basically, when I'm painting, like I have that on the screen in front of me as like my reference. And so like I tell kids that for like, oh, you can have all of your references and stuff there and you can work throughout the project. And that's why I create the PowerPoints is like this kind of ongoing thing that I just keep adding to and ends up being this 
super long thing full of photos that I use throughout the project. That actually goes into the next question that I was going to ask, which is about another exciting thing that you've been doing, which is working with students to create their own data art projects at different age levels. I saw you did like middle school and maybe also high school. Um, So the process is all outlined for them and they see examples of your art and the different steps along the way and also of other students' art. So I wanted to ask you what it's been like to work with these students and why it's important to you. Yeah, working with students has ended up being one of the most fulfilling things that I've gotten to do. It's not something I knew would like work well when I was like starting creating data art. And so I've just like increased doing that over the years. And yeah, I work mainly with like K through 12, but yeah, especially middle school, like especially like, yeah, fifth through eighth. But then I do work with high school too. And sometimes like with college, but like, of course the project is going to be really like scaled differently for all the different like kind of age groups and types of classes and stuff, which is cool. It's super easy to like curate. And so a lot of times when I work with students, I am just going in as like a guest and it's like a short thing. And so whether it's in person or I do so many now over Zoom in their classroom. And so I just give a presentation about like my work, what it, why I'm providing data and are, you know, what are some examples of my work? And then I introduce the project, which is just for them to make their own data art piece. And so it's cool because the way the project is designed, a lot of times they're like able to choose their own like topic that they're interested in. And so you end up with all these different types of stories like about all yeah all different types of environmental topics that they share and it's just been really cool because I think at least for me in school I think projects that were more like interdisciplinary were really great because you could like work with the part that excited you the most and so like there's that there's like science parts and like for students the older students that can graph it themselves and like the math parts and then there's yeah like the art and storytelling part And then like a lot of times they have to like do a little write up about it. So there's like all these different elements in there that can like work with students with different like learning strengths and interests, which I think is really cool. And I'm always really inspired by what they create. And like, and that's one of my favorite parts of it is just seeing the finished works. And like from those finished works, I'm able to gather so much about kind of their like emotions around the topic that they chose. And what they're thinking about or concerned about, like obviously younger students a lot of times choose a lot of different types of like wildlife, but there's really like all different types of topics. And that's why I'm also really try to speak to like positive things because I don't want them to feel just overwhelmed around climate change. But it's really clear to me in the work that they make that a lot of them like they're they're learning about climate change a lot more now in, in schools around the country. And so a lot of them like get it to some extent, you know. They know that it's happening. They know some stuff about it. And so it's just really interesting because it's like you're seeing all this these works by like a group of, say, like 12-year-olds or something about like climate change. And it can be like pretty nuanced, their works. And so it's really powerful because it's like, ah, look at this group of like, yeah, 12-year-olds and how much they understand in comparison to like some groups of adults and like how much they push back against science. And so it can just be really inspiring for me in that to focus on some of that. Like, I don't want them to feel like this is all on their shoulders at all, but just getting inspired by their understanding and care of these topics, like at that age, is, re- is a really cool part. So, anyway, yeah, I've been trying to like um, sometimes then be more hands on with schools and be part of like the whole project when I'm able 
but for that, I have, the school has to have funding so that can be tricky. A lot of times school, schools have really varied levels of funding. But anyway, yeah, it's super fun to get to work with like all different age groups and see what they make and get experience with kind of teaching different groups. And a lot of times I'm working, you know, with, with their teachers and almost always. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. super rewarding. One thing that really stood out to me about that is that they the students are encouraged to pick topics that are really meaningful to them. And then I also saw that in sometimes in their write-ups, one thing that they include is why they picked the topic and like why they care about it or are interested in it. Are there any themes in the topics that students have chosen that stand out to you? I definitely see a lot of... Um certain topics are presented by students and I'm sure it's like somewhat regional too but I I feel like there are some things that like I see a lot like I feel like I see a lot around some things that they like they've learned about and really understand like a lot of pieces about wildlife that's just something a lot of them care about and so it's cool when for that one there's like you know a whole range of species that are recovering or declining or kind of staying the same and so that there can be a lot of like range in the positive or negative aspects of the story um so that's yeah another another common theme i see that like kids really connect and care about and lastly i was gonna add that i was able to go in person to to work with a school in seattle last week that um, a group of sixth graders and when i was there i was able to see the data art that the class created the the prior year and it was just really neat to see like some of the students had chosen some kind of like things around like positive action, like recycling and like what we what we can do to like chip in and like kind of represented that in their artwork in different ways. So I really like seeing that like aspect in the students who are recognizing those stories as well. It's really easy to dwell on the more negative side of things, but then there are also positive changes that are happening like you showed in the piece that we were talking about earlier about replanting. So that's great to hear that there's that variety with the students. Earlier when we were talking about your journey in college of combining these fields, I know for me I'm trying to combine environmental studies and creative writing together. So I wanted to ask you if you have any advice for other students who are in similar situations or have similar interests? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I hope that, you know, combining programs and majors in different ways is something that like keeps, you know, starts to be more like kind of encouraged and easier to do with different colleges. I think that for me, it was really helpful to kind of find some people who could be kind of like mentors for me when I was in school. And that didn't like, that didn't happen right away. That was kind of like, you know, later on as I got like some, you know, closer relationships with different professors and my programs, but like people who I could really kind of, um, I guess like, yeah, get not just get advice from, but kind of like just felt like support. I felt like they supported my work and like I had those good relationships and sometimes kind of like purposefully pursuing them because I feel like as a student, sometimes you feel like the professors kind of, I don't know, it's hard to like contact them about something, but in reality, it, that, that's what they want often like if they're the right kind of mentor for you. And so that's what I encourage. I just had a couple art professors and a couple um, like climate science professors who I felt like really supported me and would give me uh, as a result of their like mentorship and support, like helped me grow and find out like how I wanted to combine my majors because I feel like the college infrastructure itself didn't necessarily support that, but like they as individuals did. 
And so I think that's one one thing is just like finding those people who are going to support you. And obviously that can be outside of the college as well. That could be like, you know, a professional artist who you could like intern for. Or it could be any kind of like person who could support you. But I think within the college, it can be helpful to have someone. And then I think that there's no like time frame for when you kind of figure out like how to pair them. You know, like in my classes, I wasn't like constantly trying to combine them. But when it when I wanted, when it was exciting or, or when I was trying to do a specific assignment, for example, it, it more looked like me making art about environmental topics. And so when there was flexibility to an assignment where I could kind of combine the two, I would try to push that and I would try to think of new ideas. And then as I got like further in the program, that's when I started to look up like, oh, there are other like, you know, artists that have done that or what's out there like in, in this line of work. And I started to learn about that. But in the beginning, I didn't I didn't worry about that. But I think just exploring like your specific interests and finding out where that goes, because for me, I feel like within your fields, you oftentimes like kind of narrow in on like certain parts. And so kind of like pay attention to that. Like I was always really into stuff with glaciers and that had a family influence. But then I got to work with this really cool professor who kind of guided me in that direction. So I went with it and I, I worked in that lane. And then with art, I was always more into 2D. So I really tried to specialize in like painting and printmaking. I didn't do like, I didn't do music or writing or two or 3D sculpture. You know, like I kind of, it's not like you have to specialize, but it helped me to kind of streamline it into like really growing certain skill sets. And then I think lastly, like reaching out to people who are doing something like you might want to do. Like now, sometimes I'll have college students or yeah, yeah, like often college students like kind of reach out to me with like, hey, like I'm doing something, you know, kind of similar. Can I like ask you some questions or connect with you? And I know when I, whenever I can, I always try to do that and get back to them. Like every so often I'm behind on my email and maybe I miss it, but like most of the time I try. And some like sometimes I do that with artists today too, is like, how are you doing your business? Like, can I talk to you? Can I ask for advice? You know, like obviously say it better than that, but basically like just reaching out to people because you never know who might get back to you and might be willing to connect and you know some artists like I never hear back from and maybe they just never saw you know who knows it doesn't matter the, that's the kind of the worst that can happen but I would say just reach out to people who are doing something kind of aligned with what you might want to do because a lot of times those people are going to be really happy to share their journey and like how how they got there and be a good kind of resource and connection for for you so I guess yeah those are the three things like yeah, mentors um, with people that can support you, like really figuring out like the lanes that you are really inspired by. And then like lastly, maybe connecting with people. And this is not, none of that should cast to be overwhelming. It's just kind of like just part of the journey of believing in yourself and pursuing your passions. So how do you see science communication art changing in the future? I think that there does need to be more climate art that's kind of focusing on the hope in action because I think people are kind of inundated by the amount of messaging that's like overwhelming like a lot of people know like the majority by far I'm sure people know and understand now the climate change is happening like even though there's you know all the people that don't there's still the majority and so I think they know that and it's not like, you know, I do think learning about it more is good. So you you have some understanding of what's actually happening and and you have some understanding of maybe what's happening like in your like, you know, where you live, like in your community at the very least. 
Um, and so more people are realizing that. And I think in doing so, there comes a lot more of like, yeah, that climate anxiety and being overwhelmed, which all really makes sense. And obviously I experience at times too, but I think that's why, like I'm saying, we have plenty of, plenty of this. And so I think helping people to learn about it in ways that are geared towards it being like less overwhelming and less about the anxiety. And I don't, I don't think that just kind of showing how things were in the past as better is necessarily the way either because they're not going to be that way now. So I don't, I don't know. I think that might still be overwhelming to people, um, but also not showing like, I, I feel like I've seen a lot of art and I'm not knocking it. There's just a lot more out, out there of it where it's like, oh, the whole, you know, the world's on fire and all this pollution and it, and it's just kind of showing something kind of grim. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but there's just a lot more of that. And I think it's like, uh, yeah, I think a lot more of that has been done. And I've also done work about, you know, topics like fires and stuff. But I think that we just need more art that shows the positive. I think it's just maybe a little bit harder. And I think the best, one of the best ways that people can go about that is just digging into and learning about like, well, what, what climate action is happening out there? Like whatever scale, like global, you know, regional, like in my community, because I don't know how much I would be learning about these topics if I wasn't doing this. You know, I can't get outside of like, you know, the life that I've carved out for myself. But I do know that when I Google like climate action plan in a state, like I did it in Maine and now I've done it for like Washington and I've done it for other states I've made art about. If I Google like climate action plan is like, as far as I know, maybe every state uh, and if not most states have like their climate action plan. And then sometimes like towns or cities do too. Like I know that when I lived in Portland, Maine, they had their own specific town just for the city. And it was like, you know, this is what's going to happen with sea level rise. This is what might happen with temperatures. What are we going to do? We're going to like, you know, plant more plants. We're going to have more affordable housing. We're going to have more um, access to good food to like, you know, we're going to have more um, like green spaces, like all these kind of ideas. And maybe they're not going to achieve all of them. Like, but there's like these plans out there for what places are hoping to do. They're hoping to reduce emissions. They're hoping to make homes and businesses more like less energy intensive, or they're hoping to switch to renewables. Like there's there's all these things out there that are happening. And so I think it does a disservice if we don't pay attention to those stories um, and all the like, you know, communities, all the nonprofits, all of the like local chapters of like climate groups, like all of these things that are happening are really making a difference. And like, obviously, we need a lot more of that big level change. There needs to be more action at obviously the government and like big business level. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of really good things happening. And so this is like a long winded way of answering the question. But I'm just trying to highlight that because all these things are happening, we need like artists to be telling those stories as well. And so that can look like so many different things. Like for me, I was trying to find data to represent it and I was having a hard time. But then I, maybe I can represent it in different ways. And so there should be all types of climate art. People should make the art that they want to make and they should express what they want to express. But I think just kind of be cognizant in those of us who are pursuing like this like environmental art path. Like you can show the reality of something. You don't have to sugarcoat it, but you don't have to show it like you don't have to idealize it, but you also don't have to do like a doomsday thing with it. You can, but you can also show like this is what's happening. Okay. But like, and and here's how we can learn about it. And the, and like, this is what it might look like, but also like what could something good look like and what is something hopeful that's happening 
we just need more messaging around like hope and action and things like that. And again, that's because it's not false. It's because it's something that's happening. And we need people to remember that and like hold on to those emotions too, because I think they those emotions really encourage more hope and action, whereas like emotions around being overwhelmed kind of encourage that. So just kind of, yeah, thinking about the messaging we're putting out there in the world as artists and a lot of people see art, a lot of people love art. So it has its influence. And so just to consider what that influence can be. A lot of the times, like the more doomsday scenarios can be paralyzing. Um, When you look at them, you're like, I don't know what to do with this. This seems like too big of a problem for me as an individual to kind of work on or grapple with. So showing the other side of that, of things getting better or of people working on those issues, I can see that being a great direction to go in the future rather than only focusing on how things have gotten worse. Thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. This was, it was really, you had really great questions. And so it was really fun to kind of share a little bit about my work and yeah, hear from hear from you about it. Thanks for tuning into Shellbone. To learn more about our projects, visit our website at breachthesurface.org or social media at Breach the Surface. To learn more about Jill's work and view a gallery of her art, visit her website at jillpelto.com and on Instagram at jillpelto.